Hey, Life Church. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, today is going to be uh, a little different. I wanted to be able to speak to you um, from my heart, pastorally, on a subject that, quite honestly, I've never preached about in the past 15 years of preaching. Um, the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about God's kingdom and American politics. Uh, I know that there has been a tremendous amount of noise, um, information, um, even, even just intense uh, narratives around the political environment that are going on, especially as we head towards Tuesday. And so I, my hope is that this would not be that. It would be something that's a little bit of a break from that, and, and I've been feeling convicted now for months uh, that we would have an opportunity as a church, as a community, and even if you're new and watching this, uh, to be able to stop in the midst of all that's swirling around us, some of you obviously feeling very firm and convinced in your belief, some of you feeling probably very confused of how you're supposed to be feeling in all this, uh, and to ask some different kinds of questions. I know that spending a few minutes talking about uh, God's kingdom and American politics is an incredibly charged and loaded topic to dive into. And so I'm asking you uh, for grace. I'm asking that uh, whatever uh, things are lying beneath the surface of, of your political ideology, whether that's, again, a strong conviction or something that you're not sure what to think or believe, uh, that, that maybe, um, to the best of our ability, we could put that aside and we can just ask the question, uh, not who to vote for, not uh, what's right or wrong, uh, but to really be able to look at the scriptures and to understand where God's heart is in the mid middle of this. Mark Sayers, who's a sociologist and pastor in Australia, uh, really clearly defines that politics are the new religion of the day. And the reality is uh, even heading into this sermon and the preparation, there's a heaviness that I feel in knowing that I could say one sentence and it could mean a whole lot of things I never intended it to mean. Yet, um, I still feel prompted by the Holy Spirit uh, to dive into this conversation uh, really through a pastoral lens. So before I begin, I just wanted to lay out a couple of things. Number one, uh, what this is not, and then also to give definition of what this is. So a couple of things of what this is not. Um, I will not be trying to convince anyone of a certain political persuasion or ideology. Um, I'm not, my goal is not to, for you to change who you're voting for uh, come Tuesday. Uh, this will not be an opportunity for you to try and figure out my political views. Um, so if you're here with your arms crossed trying to figure out my thoughts, I would love to have a cup of coffee rather uh, than for you to listen to this. Uh, this will not be a political science lecture. I'm not, uh, I didn't go to school for political science. I'm not a politician. Uh, this is something I'm still learning and educating myself about as much as possible. But those are a few things that um, this is not going to be. But there's a few things that I desire for this to be. Number one, this is a sermon that is deeply theological and it's deeply based in scripture. Number two, um, that this would be a pastoral exhortation for people um, who I love and people who are part of our community, uh, that this would be uh, just an intimate conversation, if you will. 
Number three, that this would be a framework on how to engage our political environment long after the election is done. Number four, that this would be an opportunity to invite Jesus to form and reform how we begin to think about God's kingdom and American politics and how they intersect. So just with some of that clarity, I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and we're just going to dive into the scriptures. Father, we thank you so much that you are not segmented into certain parts of our life and while others we are left to figure out ourselves. God, thank you that you care deeply about your children, which means you care deeply about where we live and who governs where we live. God, thank you that you have called us to be a new humanity. You've called us to be a royal priesthood, a people set apart. And Holy Spirit, we're asking for clarity on that. Lord, in a world of a lot um, of just adversity, a lot of fear and insecurity, um, Lord, we're asking that we would leave today with a greater sense of peace um, and a greater understanding um, of your heart in the midst of all of this. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so just to go over my outline today, just my, my hope is to lay out five what I believe to be kingdom principles uh, when it comes uh, to engaging the political sphere. Number one, that we would remember our citizenship. Number two, We'd partner with clarity. Number three, we would engage with compassion. Number four, we would act with civility. And number five, we would pray with conviction. Uh, But we have to begin with the first one, remembering our citizenship. The Apostle Paul writes to the letter, writes a letter to the church in Philippi, and he says this, let us live up to what we have already attained He says a similar line in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, who says, let let us live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And so Paul's reminding the church, don't forget your identity. Don't forget who you are is so much more deeper than what's swirling around you. And he, he exhorts the church, says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have Have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this language of heavenly citizenship would have struck a chord with the church in Philippi because Philippi was a really interesting town. Although it was hundreds of miles from Rome, it was considered a Roman colony, which meant it had every sort of legal right that Rome would have as far as being a Roman citizen would be extended to that town of Philippi. D.A. Carson, his commentary writes like this, Philippi had the special status of being a Roman colony. This meant that it was like a little piece of Rome abroad. The Latin language was used. Roman law controlled local administration and taxes. Many aspects of public life went on as if Rome itself, and most of the officials had the same titles as in Rome. And so I love this understanding that 
as things went on in Rome, they would go on in Philippi. The lifestyle of Rome would happen in Philippi. The titles given to the the governing authorities would would take place. And so if you went to Philippi, it really would be like a little Rome. And Paul uses this very common social analogy that they would have been familiar with and says, your citizenship is actually not Roman. Keep in mind, Paul was a Roman citizen based on where he was born. It's why he's in jail in Rome as, as he's awaiting to see Caesar. But he calls him as actually your citizenship is in heaven. And this has all sorts of implications, meaning that you should not just view your life as a, as a little Rome abroad. You should view your life as a little heaven on earth abroad. That the economy of heaven should look like the economy of God's people. That the reality of heaven, the life of heaven, the values and the priorities of heaven should also be your values and priority. And so this is a rich statement and proclamation that Paul is giving to this church. Don't forget who you are. Live up to what you have already attained. Your citizenship is not of this earth. Jesus, um, this, this understanding of a heavenly citizenship wasn't something that Paul invented up. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked about this idea of a kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They're synonymous themes more than any other theme he ever taught on. Just wrap your head around that. The number one message Jesus came to preach was not just love. It wasn't justice. It wasn't mercy. It wasn't righteousness. It was kingdom. He wanted for people to understand there is a reality. There is a rule and a reign of God that is here and it's now. This is why in Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, turn, change your mind. Literally is what repent means. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's among us. There's another time it says that the kingdom of God is within in. It's inside of us. It's not this oppressive thing coming upon. It's this inward revolution that's coming from within going out. And Paul picks up on this idea that Jesus talks about more than any other thing. And he says, this is where your citizenship lies. And we have to begin with this, this framework in order to talk about politics because it's so easy for us to be inundated with the information and the noise of today to thinking that our citizenship, first and foremost, belongs to the country that we live in. And although we do live in a country and we have a call and a mission within this country, it is not where our citizenship, it is not where our identity, and it is not where our allegiance lies. Now, there is this this theological framework uh, that pastors use and should use probably more often to be able to decide where things fit. And so politics is a great example of that. How important should politics be to the people of God? Well, four things to consider for a theological framework. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to divide for? What are you willing to debate for? And what are you willing just to decide for? And so to die for might be things like the kingdom of God, the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Things you'd be willing to divide for might be on the level of authority that scripture has. There's things that you might be willing to debate for. You you understand you're on the same team, you're brothers and sisters, but it might be Calvinism and Arminianism or things like that. And you're you're debating over those things and they're important. And then there's those things that you decide for, your, your movie choices, how you handle Sabbath, what you wear to church on Sunday. And, and there's this whole spectrum 
And what I would like to propose to you today is I think we have moved our politics from an issue of something that we should decide for and maybe in the right context debate for to something that we divide for and some people even die for. That our political ideology has raised to such a level in our minds and hearts that we see the ramifications of this and the level of stress and anxiety that are going on in our emotional state this week. Why? Because without knowing it, something that matters and is important can become overly significant, overly um, important to the point that it affects our very core being. And the whole time the scripture is calling us, no, 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 no. Remember your citizenship. We have to remember this. One of the most interesting things that I've read, I've been doing a ton of reading and listening the past few months, was an article that Tim Keller wrote that was published in the New York Times a couple of years ago. And the question was asked, should the Christian faith identify with one political party? And he's responding to this, and and I want to read a lengthy um, excerpt from this because I believe he articulates this really well. He says this, What should the role of Christians in politics be? More people than ever are asking that question. Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagements are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what they would call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political. So what do we do? He says, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. This does not mean that the church can never speak on social, economic, and political realities, because the Bible often does. Racism is a sin, violating the second of the two great commandments of Jesus to love your neighbor. The biblical command to lift up the poor and to defend the rights of the oppressed are moral imperatives for all believers. For individual Christians to speak out against erogious violations of those moral requirements are not optional. However, there are many possible ways to help the poor. Should we shrink the government and let private capital markets allocate resources? Or should we expand the government and give the state more of the power to redistribute wealth? Or is the right path one of the many possibilities in between? The Bible does not give us exact answers to these questions for every time, place, and culture. And I love how he talks about this, that there is an invitation for us to engage a political environment. Yet, we have a different framework than just the either or, the one or the other invitation that our world is trying to tell us. There's something that we are invited into to think differently about. In Hebrews, the the author says this, we have received, another translation says, we belong to an unshakable kingdom. Let us have grace. Through him, we may offer service that will please God with reverence and fear. So, So what do we do? And do we step back? Do we step in? So I just want to kind of just take this step further, but we've began there. We all understand that we belong to a different kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so the question is, how do we engage in a government that's primarily a two-party system that 
has a lot to do with the distribution of goods to society. It's what politics are and how we think about them. Uh, well, let me begin with telling you a story from the Old Testament. Joshua has just succeeded Moses, and he's taking the people of God into the promised land. And they're getting ready for war. And this interesting interaction happens with Joshua. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servants? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There's so much going on in this interaction. But I think that this, there's something that should not get beyond us, that Joshua is fighting. He's a general. He's leading Israel, God's people. And he shows up to this angelic warrior. Some would even interpret this might be Yahweh in the flesh, that God and his presence, at least one of his angelic commanders, is standing in front of Joshua. And, he, and Joshua asks this question, are you for us or against us? which I think so many Americans are asking right now based on their political ideology, which side is God on? And I would just offer you the same answer that the angel offered Joshua. Neither. The correct question is, are you on God's side? Are you with him? Are we we honestly seeking, praying, God, how do we join you in your victorious presence here on earth, bringing your kingdom here among us? And so one of the ways that we can do this practically is discerning the difference between partnership and allegiance. And the reason I bring that up is because oftentimes we confuse the two. Many people say, well, I'm only going to vote for Jesus. I'm not political. And so they choose neither. They're not willing to partner with anyone because they're too afraid to give up their allegiance. And I don't think that's the correct answer. The the idea is that we can choose to partner with, whether it's a political party, whether it's a movement, whether it's an ideology, if that helps perpetuate our allegiance, which first and foremost belongs to God. And so for us to understand that greater, because then that brings a whole other set of questions. Well, how do you know that? How do I know who to partner with? How do I know who to vote for? How do I know which party would bring about Um, my allegiance to God's kingdom most. And not to oversimplify this, but Jesus does this all the time. In the complexities of the world, he draws things back to the simplicity. He says this, when asked about what's the most important commandment in the law, Matthew 22 says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here's Jesus. It's in all the synoptic gospels. He's asked this question, what's the greatest? What's the filter in which you see the entirety of scripture, the entirety of God's word? And he says, it's about loving God and it's about loving people. So if you were to begin anywhere, with how to make your political decision, it needs to begin with love. How will we, how will this system create the most flourishing environment, God's extension of agape love uh, in the world around me? 
This isn't a political statement. This is a deeply theological statement. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law, which means we read the entire, the entirety of Scripture through the lens of Jesus. And then Jesus takes a step further saying, if you want to understand how to follow me, how to love me, how to abide with me, it's through love. So this is where we begin, is understanding this idea that we have to be able to look through this idea um, of this polarizing partisanship of the house of one or other and just say, no, 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 we have to be able to approach each election, each policy, each thing we're voting for, each, each representative, and to be able to always go back and use that as our lens and our framework to do that. Because the reality is there are these, there is these pitfalls of politics and there's beauty of politics. And so let me explain both. I think one of the biggest pitfalls of American politics is summarized by this phrase, you have to go along to get along, meaning you have to be able to take every single thing that that party is about and assume that that's what you have to be about. And in by doing that, you are essentially saying that the kingdom of God can fit nicely within that political system rather than that political system can be a vehicle for some of the some of the goodness, some of the vision for what the kingdom of God is wanting to bring. Um, James Mumford, who's a British ethicist, says calls this package deal ethics, meaning that if you are on the right or on the left, meaning you have to accept and welcome every single ideology, decision that that makes. And if you don't, that somehow you are jeopardizing that thing. And again, that sounds like allegiance more than partnership. And that would just be my invitation. But although there is that pitfall within politics, I I don't want to just, again, there's a beauty that can come with politics. Um, You look at Micah 6, 8, it says, show us um, what is good. What does the Lord require? It says, act justly, Love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Psalm 72, when talking about the role of the king, this governing authority, it says this, that he, may he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. James 2, 14 through 17 talks about, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister was out clothes or daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 10, the story that comes after the great commandment. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, You look at the whole book of Daniel. I mean, this is a highly political book of standing up against the state, not aligning, but choosing to be integrated within this society, having influence within this society, but willing to stand out and stand away from some of the cultural pressures of that day. I mean, look at the story of Joseph. I mean, there's so many um, moments within the scriptures that that shows God's people stepping into the political sphere, inviting Jesus' followers into the political sphere to bring about justice, to bring about the distribution of goods so that people can be able to have access because this is a part of our faith. Um, Just some historical examples of the beauty of what can happen when faith and politics meet. Number one is William Wilberforce. 
1759 through 1833 was his life, and he was an amazing abolitionist driven by his faith that ended up being about the person who got rid of slavery in the English parliament. Um, Frederick Douglass, um, an American abolitionist, was instrumental in helping shape Abraham Lincoln and his ideology uh, for the emancipation of slavery, all driven by their faith uh, to bring about God's goodness in the world. Uh, Catherine and William Booth. Um, Catherine was kind of the queen of the Salvation Army. She used the political sphere to bring about change that has still had rippling effects all around the world uh, because she's willing to engage with this. Um, Franny Lou Hamer, a more recent example, uh, was a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was help, being willing to help educate and bring voting accessibility um, in the South when Jim Crow laws were going on. A very dangerous thing to do. And so these are just a few people in our history who saw the intersection of God's kingdom and the politics of their day and were led by love as their defining ethic to be able to engage um, what God is wanting to do in that moment. And I just think, man, what if we, that was our ambition, to remember our citizenship, but to partner with clarity. The clarity is not someone standing up here and saying, here's who you should vote for and here's why. The clarity is understanding we have the spirit of God inside us and we have a North Star and that is Jesus Christ and the love that he's told us and showed us how to give. And that's our invitation is learning how to not give our allegiance to a political party, but to partner with the politics of the day to bring about an unshakable kingdom that our allegiance fully should lie with. Number three, we must engage with compassion. I think one of the hardest things for us aren't these first two points. Hopefully, if you're still listening, you're tracking. You're like, yep, citizen of heaven, right? Uh, I need to partner with clarity. Um, I want to be able to understand how to work with God. This next point, engaging with compassion, is one that I feel that I'm continuing to feel convicted that I need to grow in. Um, in so doing, is over the past few months as I've gotten for the, ready for this talk, Part of my preparation is I've sat down for coffee with men and women I really respect who are on different sides of the political spectrum but are God-fearing, gospel-believing followers of Jesus. And I would just ask them questions like, help me understand how your faith works in that sort of partnership. And I've learned a ton. I haven't agreed with everything I've heard. I've, I've been challenged on a lot of things. But what the goal in all of this is to be able to step into God's kingdom work through uh, the ability to act compassionately. So let me just, let me just give some clarity here. Um, because of social media, because of watching the news stations we choose to watch too, it's easy to, be, to have so much information confirming who we are, what we believe, um, that we can begin to diminish some of our own brothers and sisters who think differently than us, different ideologies. Um, just to give one of the most startling thing, stats that I've, I've heard is that 82% of white evangelicals uh, vote Republican. That ebbs and flows a little bit, but over the past four to five years, it's stayed relatively around that number. 90% of 
of black Protestants um, vote for the Democratic Party. And understanding that, I believe, is, a, is an invitation to understand that maybe things aren't just so clear-cut as we've made them out to be. Maybe there's more conversations to be had. And by, and by the way, this is, not, this is not me asking you to lay down your convictions. It's not even asking you to change your mind. It's asking for us that we'd be a people of compassion. Compassion means to, to feel with, right? To suffer with, to understand those different things that maybe we haven't understood before. In the book, Conviction and Compassion uh, by Justin Gibney. He defined, he just brings, I think, a really good definition of these two different sides that can feel so polarizing. And he says this, hear how these competing narratives usually play out. Those on the right side of the political spectrum say they stand for individual freedom, patriotism, and moral order. The left, on the other hand, claims to stand for justice, equality, and inclusion. Conservatives say progressives are immoral because of their position on abortion, religious liberty, and the like. Progressives say conservatives are bigoted and lack compassion when it comes to poverty, race, and gender. gender. Both sides have become less tolerant of differing viewpoints and often stamp out candidates and advocates with a more nuanced and moderate perspective. And so, again, it just gives some, some vocabulary around what are we feeling. And what we're feeling is, in a word, is division, which we know Uh, from John's gospel is the agenda of the enemy. And we know that as much as that's the agenda of the enemy, that there is an agenda of God's kingdom found in John 17 is that we would be one. We would be one, that we would be people who are choosing uh, to, to step into a greater reality, a deeper rootedness into a different kind of kingdom. My friend Evan Wickham says it like this, Let's not betray Christian unity for partisan allegiance. I'm just going to say that again. Let's not betray Christian unity for partisan allegiance. So, so what, are, what are you proposing, you might be asking, um, just to understand this other side better or to leave my side? And I would say not, not entirely. Here, here's what I would love for us to do as a church. Be willing to entertain is that your political party persuasion, again, some of you guys are really, you know exactly what you want to do. You're loyal. You've always been loyal. Some of you guys are just trying to figure out, well, how do I make sense of this? Where do I land in all of this? When you vote, whoever comes into the presidency on Tuesday, we are electing with them a set of values, and with those values will also come gaps. I remember being in London and, and taking the tube and, and going around and there'd be these signs everywhere just mind the gap. And those signs would always make you just look, not at everything that's going around you, but making sure you don't trip up on these, these differing gaps. And so one of my pleas for you today would be mind the gap. And you might be like, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is if you choose a partner, and by partner you're choosing to partner with a political party in bringing about a a kingdom reality that can never fit into a political persuasion, you are also admitting that that political party has gaps. And as the church, please hear my invitation, 
that is an opportunity for us, God's people, to not resign to say, thank God, they're in power, or oh my gosh, I can't believe they're in power. But it's to say, okay, here who is, here's the agenda, here are the policies, here are the policy makers who are running our country right now. What are the gaps? Whether this is the party you voted for or not, there will be gaps. And here's the invitation of the church, of God's people, to not rely on a political Messiah, but to follow Jesus of Nazareth into stepping into the gaps that these political parties leave. And so I just want to give you two practical examples of what this could look like. No matter where you land and you vote for, let's say uh, the, the, the right, the conservative, the Republican Party comes into power. And in that, there are a set of values that might excite you. Um, and there also might be some things that might disturb you. Let's say let's, that the, the left and the democratic and the more progressive side comes into power. And there might be things they like, wow, they'll, they'll do these things good, but there's also things that don't excite me. I think it's being able to have honest conversations about this. So let me give you just two examples of people that I know personally who've chosen to step into the gap in these things. Um, one, if a political party gets into power that does not value the sanctity of life for the unborn, That's something we can engage in the political realm, but it's also something we can engage with right here and right now in our city. Um, There's an amazing clinic in Escondido called Alternatives Women's Clinic, and they do incredible work, not just in providing ultrasounds and medical care, but providing care long after the baby's born. And that's an opportunity, it's an invitation that when we feel like there's a gap in our government system, that shouldn't surprise us. Let's step into that gap. I was on the phone with my sister this week, and she was telling me um, that she, um, her church has just started a program where they've started writing letters back and forth of encouragement uh, to immigrants who are being held in detention centers waiting for their court hearing for their asylum here in the United States. And she was describing to me the person that she's writing with is a 20-something-year-old man from Cameroon. He's a believer in Jesus Christ, and he's been in for a few months and doesn't know when he's going to get out. He can't go for walks. He has no freedom, and he fled because of persecution. He doesn't know where his family is. And my sister has taken the opportunity to say, Whether, whatever you believe about immigration reform, there's real people. There's real brothers and sisters and followers of Jesus sitting in detention centers who need encouragement, who need care. And so those are just two practical sides that might, one might lean more right or to the left based on political ideology, but both are invitations for the people of God to step into. Well, I'm going to care about the, I care about life of the unborn and the mother and providing care that is more than just, do you believe this thing? It's needing hands and feet of compassion. There's real people who are affected by the immigration policies that we make. And there's children, there's adults who need care and compassion. And again, hopefully as I'm saying these things, this isn't flaring up a sense of anger that I don't get it. Listen, I I understand that. But I also understand the scriptures well enough to know that I am called to love people in messy circumstances, period. 
That's what it looks like to stand in the gap. That's what it looks like to step into whatever empty spaces, whatever political party comes into power, creates. We have an opportunity as the church to step into that. Four, my encouragement to this is act with civility. Um, I love this, uh, this quote from the Compassion Conviction book. It says this, Civility is how we treat one another in public, what philosopher and former resident of Fuller Theological Seminary, Richard Mao, called public politeness. It amounts to a set of norms that make up a code of public decency. In politics, civility shows itself in respect for disagreement and in granting others the right to express it. Civility shows itself when we acknowledge the best in our political opponents, line of thinking, and their best in our political opponents themselves. I love this. Civility is mercy and forgiveness. It is a form of public grace. Can I implore you, would we be people because because we remember our citizenship, because we partner with clarity, because we are willing to engage with compassion that we would not forget that we are always to act with civility, civility, with public grace, choosing love. That means not interrupting that family member at Thanksgiving who's, who's sitting on the total opposite end of the political spectrum, but listening, choosing to honor the dignity that they are made in the image of God, listening and caring for that person, showing that public mercy and grace is a part of our call. And you might be like, well, prove it to me. Well, okay. John 13, 4 through 35 says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is choosing to show public grace to betrayers and backstabbers and liars and cheaters. So no matter how much you think the other person has it wrong, the world will know our, our, our allegiance to our God, not by the box you check on Tuesday. It's by how we love specifically those who are hard to love. This is essential for the follower of Jesus. Essential. I love this. My mentor, John Kobler, says this, if you get what you asked for on Tuesday, be humble. If you didn't get what you asked for, be hopeful. This is an opportunity for us to act with civility. Um, Some of you guys just need to get off social media. Stop reading Facebook things. If, if it just feels like people's ignorance, what you think is ignorance, is making you come to a boiling point, it's an invitation. Even if you are so convinced that you're right, and maybe you are, how we treat those who think differently than us and act differently than us is critical to our witness as followers of Jesus. We cannot betray this. We have to welcome this. And lastly, my my exhortation for you would be pray with conviction. Pray with conviction. And as I was getting ready for this sermon, I knew I wanted to talk about prayer, but there's something about me that just felt like that there'd be a point where whoever's watching this would just kind of tune out. Be like, oh yeah, of course, pray for your leaders. But I don't want to skip over this point because I think it's actually the most important one. If you think 
your vote is more powerful than your prayer, then you are living in the wrong citizenship. Let me say that again. If you think that your vote for a human politician is more powerful than your prayer to the king of kings, then your citizenship is confused. Our prayers deeply matter because our God deeply cares about us. That should be a resounding, overwhelming sense of peace and an invitation for us to step into prayer. I mean, if we spent half the time praying for our leaders, praying for the election, as we did researching, as we did being angry and talking with our friends about, I can't believe how they don't understand it, but believing, man, our God is so much bigger. And as I was thinking about this and knew I wanted to talk about this, I was reading a book by Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, um, on how to pray the Psalms. And I came across this segment. I wanted to read this to you because it, it so challenged me. So please listen to this. He says this, People command most of the armies of the world, direct the advances of science, run school systems, rule over governments, and, and, um, and rule in the marketplaces. If these people are an active conspiracy against the rule of God, what difference can prayer make? And what, that's such an important question. What difference can prayer make? What chance do we have when the movers and shakers of the earth are conspiratorially aligned against God. Intimidation is, a, is as fatal to prayer as distraction. I just want to read that again. Intimidation, what can prayer do? Is as fatal to prayer as distraction. If we are intimidated, we will forfeit the entire world of culture and politics, of business and science to those who set themselves against the Lord. What is at issue here is size. We require an act of imagination that enables us to see that the world of God is large, far larger than the worlds of kings and princes, prime ministers and presidents, far larger than the world's reporters by newspapers and televisions, far larger than the world described in big books by nuclear physicists and militant historians. We need a way to imagine, to see that the world of God's ruling world Word is not an afterthought to the worlds of the stock exchange, the rocket launching, and summer diplomacy, but itself contains them. What an exhortation. We need to not be intimidated to the point where we feel our prayers are ineffective. We need to use our minds and our imaginations to understand the reality that our God is bigger, that there is not a king or kingdom on this earth that somehow supersedes God's kingdom that we are part of, that's unshakable. This is why our citizenship is so vital to understand that we would be people who are willing to step into the gaps that our political systems, as broken as they are, create that we would be a people who act with civility and with compassion 
We would be people who use love as our teleological ethic, right? Our lens in which we see everything else through the world. That we would be people who pray. And this would be how we conduct ourselves. Scott Solis says this, the point is this. Under Jesus, political loyalties lose their intimacy. People who disagree with each other politically can also enjoy friendship and common ground as they identify first and foremost as followers of Jesus. Whenever this happens, worldly methods like caricature, spin, and partisan absolutism fade from their politics. My last invitation to you today um, would be one of communion. We are called to unity. And how can we be unified in the most divisive point in our nation's recent history? It's because of Jesus. It's because of his kingdom. It's because he invited us to a table with other people who completely miss it, just like us. And he breaks bread and he shares the cup and he washes feet. And I'm asking us as Light Church, would we do the same? I'm not asking you to stick your head in the sand or to deny your convictions, but I'm asking you as you choose your partnerships, also don't forget your allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Would you remember that our love for one another and for the world around us matters, that our prayers desperately matter, and that we can go into this week and whatever outcome there is, and no matter how much the news wants to convince you of the instability of the world around us, we belong to an unshakable kingdom. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that world powers, political systems, and governments are nothing new, and not one of them has ever challenged, Lord, the security of your kingdom. Lord, I I know I'm, I'm not the most knowledgeable about politics, but God, I'm convinced I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced, Lord Jesus, of what you've invited us into. What I'm asking right now as as a church, God, that we would remember our citizenship. Belongs to you, belongs to, to heaven. Lord, I pray that you would help us partner with clarity, that you would help us understand that just that just because people see things differently does not make them wrong, but it's an invitation for us to continue to learn. Lord, I pray you would help us engage with compassion. Help us to step into the gaps that our political systems create. Lord, help us to act with civility, with grace in public. And Lord, lastly, I pray that you would let us pray with conviction. Lord, we pray for President Donald Trump. We pray for his administration. God, we pray for whoever will be elected this Tuesday. God, you know more than we do. But Lord, we choose to continue to pray for our governors, our mayors, our president, our congressmen and women. Lord, I pray that you just continue to drive us to our knees 
and that we would understand that this is our greatest political act we could ever do. Thank you for inviting us to the table. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last thing, uh, this might be an opportunity for you if you haven't been able to join us in person. Um, might be a good time to break out a piece of bread and some grape juice or wine and, and to share communion, maybe even with someone who thinks differently than you, to call a brother or sister and to remind them and yourselves of our citizenship that belongs to God and his kingdom. Much love and grace and peace to you.